Reformation Sunday. Uh, you know, uh, Reformation is what, the, what Netzer, I lead Netzer, and those of you, uh, most of you know what that is, and that's what we're working for. Everything we're working for is for Reformation in the church. And uh, we believe that we're on the precipice, potentially, of, uh, of a great Reformation, uh, similar to what happened 500 years ago with the Protestant Reformation, except that caused us to divide into many uh, factions. But we're looking at another kind of Reformation that allows us to come together in our local geographic spheres. And uh, that's, what we're, that's what we're laboring for. It's what we're educating for. It's what we're connecting for. And most of all, it's what we're praying for. And, uh, and that's what we do. That's, that's what the, the purpose of Netzer is, is to help us reform in the way we relate to one another in the wider body of Christ. And so I think that's probably why Justin says, all right, if we're doing Reformation Sunday, let's have Tim come and talk about Reformation. And typically when we talk about Reformation Sunday, we're going to talk about the way the church at large is formed. You know, you talk about the, the, the reforming of doctrine, the reforming of how we connect with one another, the reforming of the practices and the way the church works, that how the church is, functions, believes, does, all of that, that there's an ability for the church to be reforming consistently, reforming more and more into the model of what it is that God has called us to and into the design that he's created for the church. And I think that's the most appropriate way to um, to acknowledge and teach on Reformation Sunday because that's really what we're celebrating in when we look at the Reformation. However, with that said, that's not entirely what we're going to be doing today. Um, I, I do think that how we form as a church is essential. If you think about a marching band, and it's one thing when the marching band's got their music going, it's another thing when they make formations in the midst of getting their music going. And there's something really spectacular that happens when a marching band can not only play the right music, but can also keep a certain formation. And it's like, it's inspiring. You know, it's really inspiring and it's beautiful. And so formation helps form the beauty that goes along with the music. And that's part of what, what's offered to us in how we form. There's beauty in how we form. Think about the military. Battle formations. They're important. How the, how the military forms itself when coming into a contest, when coming into collision with another force, is important because that has to do with the tactical advantages. Learning how to be strategic. And if those formations break, it could be very costly in the battle. And in the same way, the, the, the way that God calls the church to form, if we lose sight of the form of the church, we not only lose some of the beauty of the church, but we lose the tactical advantage in spiritual warfare. And we lose the ability to have all the structure that God gave to us in order to be effective in those ways. Think about geese. Seeing a lot of them right now, right? Yesterday morning when Jen and I were waking up, I was like, man, that sounds like a just army of geese out there. And I went and looked outside, and sure enough, just over our house, they just kept coming, coming, and coming. And formation's everything for them, isn't it? 
And so the, the beauty of the marching band, the tactical advantage of the military, but it's the efficiency that geese need in order to make their journey. That if they stand on their own and fly on their own, they're going to be using way too much energy and they're not going to be able to take it the distance. And so for endurance, for efficiency, efficiency isn't so we can pat ourselves on the back and and say, we got a lot done in a short period of time, look how good I am. The point of efficiency is that we can actually stay in it for the long haul. It's it's, It's the efficiency of our resources. And how we form as the church is essential. And right now, one of the reasons why the wider church in America is often dying on the vine is because every church is reproducing the exact same thing, even though they're neighbors, instead of sharing resources. It's not the picture in the scriptures. That doesn't set us up well for the long haul, for the long journey. Guys are like, man, Tim just gave a whole lot of examples without using sports. You know, our boys just yesterday won their championship in, in, uh, in their, uh, for their school team this year. They're super excited. Yeah, it's awesome. And honestly, what allowed their team to win was the fact that they kept shape and they moved the ball, spread the field, and were able to maintain possession. And if we want to continue to maintain what it is that God has given us, if we want to continue to move forward into victory, if we want to continue to have the beauty, if we want to continue to have the efficiency, if we want to continue to have tactical advantage, it's essential that we maintain shape or that we find the correct shape, that we reform. But here's the thing about Reformation in the church is that it's not only structural and it's not only corporate. For me, I'll preach all day for the rest of my life about how the wider church should be reforming in a way that makes us more beautiful, that makes us more efficient, that makes us more effective, that makes us more capable, that gives us more endurance. All of those things can be done so much more effectively if the wider body of Christ could be formed appropriately in our geographic circles. And I'll fight till the day I die to see that happen. And and I believe in it with every part of my being because every shape is vital. In soccer, it's a triangle. There should be triangles all over the field, you know? In marching band, you want moving shapes. For geese, you want a V, right? And there's shapes that are important. For the church, It's that we are one. It's the shape of oneness. You know, and that's what's essential. It has to have mobility. It has to have the ability for it to grow and to expand and to flex and to reproduce. But it's always got to be one. But it's not just the corporate part of the church that needs reformation. And it's not just the structural part of the church that needs reformation. It's not just the gathered church that needs reformation. What I'm finding more and more is that when I yearn and hunger and pray and labor for reformation in the corporate and in the regional church, the thing that makes it most difficult is that Christians need reformation in their lives. 
And until we are willing to lay our lives down and reform ourselves personally around Christ, the long haul work that it's going to take to bring reformation to the church isn't available. And sometimes what I find is that Christians desire to see the reformation of the wider church so it can make their own journey easier. When in fact, what it means is I have to lay down my life so that the church can be reformed in the next generation so that our children and our children's children can be much more effective over the long haul of being efficient with the talents and the gifts that God places within them. Reformation is a reformation not only of the church gathered, but of each part, each member The formation only works when each part of the formation is functional. This is exactly what Paul is doing in the book of Romans when he gets to chapter 12. You know, Romans is one of these books that's just like jam-packed with so much theology and so much story, and so much happening. It's one of those books that, a long time ago, I used to like it because there was a lot of, like, quotable verses in it, you know? Like, if you want to just pull out verses here and there and use them, it's kind of like the Psalms that way. There's just a lot of, like, individual verses. But when you try to put the whole book together, the whole letter, it's staggering. It's a lot harder to get the whole thing of what Romans is about compared to a lot of the other letters, like, you know, if I'm dealing with Philippians or something, you know? Or Philemon, real simple. Romans has a couple turning points in the book. One of them is around chapter 8, and 8 into 9, 7, 8, 9, that's a turning point. And it's it's going from the, the spot of talking about all the struggle in the first few chapters, and then it gets to this like triumphal. Uh, declaration that there's no condemnation in Christ, that nothing can separate us from God's love, that we're more than conquerors, that internally God is transforming his people so that his spirit's connecting with their spirit and he's bringing them to life. And then all of a sudden it pivots and it gets into this narrative in chapter 9 through 11 about the Jews and the Gentiles. Has anybody ever noticed that in almost all of Paul's letters, there's stuff about the Jews and the Gentiles? Has anyone ever noticed that, you know, there's this stuff, these like rich texts that tend to start off in the first few chapters of Paul's letters, and then he like dips into this weird Jew-Gentile thing that we seem to not relate to, and then at the end, he slams on a whole bunch of practical things about how we should live. Anyone ever tempted to skip over the Jew-Gentile part and the practical stuff and just focus on the inspirational stuff and the theological stuff? The thing is, you can't have the gospel without a conversation of Jews and Gentiles. There is no gospel without it. This is the great mystery that was hidden for the ages, now revealed in Christ, that the Gentiles along with the Jews are the people of God. There's something that's absolutely mesmerizing about what God does between people groups that are divided, that are separated, that aren't in formation, and how the gospel allows them to come into formation. There's something staggering about the fact that Jews and Gentiles, slave and free, male and female, all the markers that separated us in generations, in in socioeconomics, political parties, That the things that divide us, 
The gospel is powerful. And the gospel is able to bring us together beyond all of the other definitions. But it requires the transformation of individuals in order for there to be a transformation of the broader corporate group and how they form. And this is why after Paul spends chapter 9 to chapter 11 in Romans talking about the fact that things got messy between the nation of Israel and God, and that God decided this wonderful plan that's now revealed as he's bringing the Gentiles in and grafting them into this tree, and that eventually the, the Jews who had experienced separation from God are going to grow jealous and are going to be regrafted into the tree. And Paul's saying, get used to not being the ones who are the center of God's attention because the Jews are going to come back into the tree. And so you Roman Christians, be humble about it and understand that you are only here by the mercy of God. And then... Chapter 12. Let's take a strong right turn. And it says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies, plural, each one, your bodies, as a living sacrifice. I inquire of you, I encourage you, I demand of you, Paul is saying, that you present your body, each of your bodies, as a living sacrifice. See that formation? Bunch of individual, one sacrifice. And this is it. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Normally when we hear the word holiness, many of us, especially in America, think in terms of morality. When we think holy, we think good, like doing the right thing. Holy means separate, different, set apart. That can have to do with morality, but doesn't necessarily have to do with morality. What it definitely has to do with is being different. Other. So I'm asking, Paul says, I'm asking you to take your bodies and offer them as living, as a living sacrifice to be other, to be something different, set apart in a way that is pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Like, stop the press. We just heard it. True worship. This is what true worship is. Is that I, this flesh, everything that I do in this life happens inside of this temple, right? Happens right here, inside of this flesh. And the call is, is that each of us would say, this is not mine. This is God's. And everything that takes place in the sphere of this body is about the Lord. I don't own this. I lay it down as part of a sacrifice, which is the true worship. And this is how he goes into verse 2. He says, this is the true worship. Do not be conformed 
to this age. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why? That you may discern what is good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. This word conform, <clears throat> excuse me, this word conform means to be molded into a shape. So it'd be very easy to see if we're thinking reformation, well, that means I conform into something, right? Re, I, I'm, I'm being reshaped, conforming. The word transform means to be made something different, right? And so this is uh, the the transliteral uh, 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 from Greek right into English, it, it's where we get the word metamorphosis, right? So transform means being made something else. This is, when we think metamorphosis, what comes to mind? Butterflies, caterpillars and butterflies. Maybe you've heard uh, when, uh, when teaching has come around about this verse before, you've heard water used as a typical analogy for this verse. Water uh, is conformed into the container that it's poured into. So whatever shape the container is, that's the shape that the water takes. That's the water conforming to its container. The water being transformed is when you heat it up and it turns to steam, or when you put it in a freezing environment and it turns to ice. What we're being asked from God is to not be molded by the container that we are in in this world, but instead to be transformed as God makes our mind new. And this is so that we, if that happens, then we will be able to discern God's will. Notice how that happens. We don't discern God's will, so then we do that. It's we yield ourselves, offer ourselves as living sacrifice, and God begins to transform the way we think and reshape the way we see the world, and then we're able to start seeing things from God's perspective. Anytime that I hold God at arm's length and I'm trying to negotiate and say, this is my life, Here's what God wants. How do I do business with God in order to make sure he gets what I want and I get, or he gets what he wants and I get what I want? That is the very definition of pagan religion. That's contractual relationship where I appease the gods and give them what they want so that I can get what I need. A relationship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Creator God, is very, very different than that. It's that I no longer live, but Christ now lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. The sacraments make it very clear. The ordinances make it very clear. The entrance into this relationship with God is depicted by baptism. I'm dying. I'm done. I come up. Don't you know, Romans 6 don't you know that when you were baptized into Christ, you were baptized into his death? And then ongoing, the stuff that's in front of us right now that we're holding in these little cups, it shows us this relationship that he lays down his life for us and then we are called to give our lives in return. 
Here's what the amazing promise is. Is that he will transform us. If we decide to give ourselves entirely to Christ and say, I do not want control of my life. I do not want to be the one who's just fitting into the mold of my circumstances. I don't want to react to coronavirus. I don't want to react to the ethnic injustice. I don't want to react to the political hotbed that's all around me. What I want to do right now, God, is be yours. If we give our lives over to him, the promise is is that he will transform us. Caterpillars, butterflies, steam, ice. Not just being poured into the picture of our culture. Christ came to make all things new, first with individuals. We see in Psalm 139, there's that beautiful part where it says, you formed me in my mother's womb. You know, all, all my inner parts, God formed it. But then in 2 Corinthians, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, a new creature. The old has passed away and the new has come. Genesis 2.7 says, The Lord God formed man out of the dust from the ground and breathed life into his nostrils and he became a living being. But then Paul says in Galatians, My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. And in the same way that he took us from the mud and put us all together and breathed life into us. We're told that the new formation, the reforming of who we are is when Christ then takes the, the, the ashes, the bones of his dead body and empties up the tomb and raises us with him. And he even literally physically went to his disciples and breathed on them. Remember that? When he did that, it was so weird. He like is in the room with the disciples and it's just like, and breathes on them symbolizing what's about to happen in Pentecost. When again, I recreate you. I reform you. I make you new. Colossians 1.27, God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Back in Romans 8, we see the connection coming back the other way that as God is reforming individuals as he makes us new, how that affects his broader reformation. Not just of the church, not just of people groups, but of the entire cosmos, of all of creation. This is an awesome set of verses in Romans 8, 19 to 21. It says, For the creation eagerly awaits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. This is where the transformation of God, the reformation that's offered by God, is for individuals And then those individuals have something that can happen corporately, and that's where we would normally talk about on a Reformation Sunday, about how we form together because we're being transformed, and then we can deal with each other differently. But then there's this whole other part of it where creation can get set free from its bondage to decay 
because we are being revealed as those who we were made originally to be, the caretakers, the cultivators. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But in Roman, but in Revelation, that's the, that's the first chapter of the Bible. Then go all the way to the back pages of the Bible and you get to Revelation 21. And this is how it opens up. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. Yes! Yes! All right, here's the practical application for us today, okay? I'm bringing it in. Justin, I'm bringing it in. <clears throat> Team, minute for application. Um, right now, we're, we're in tumultuous times. One of the things that historians have said um, and have observed about pandemics and what's unique about pandemics uh, throughout history is this is how they primarily differ from moments of world war. You know, world war, they, it, 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 it's a massive change for everyone. And yet in world war, one thing is that there's sides, there's causes, there's direction. There's a sense of good guys and bad guys, whether that's legit or not, you know? And there's, there's this idea, this purpose, this meaning of this is why we're in it. Whether that's legit or not, there's a sense of purpose and meaning. But in a pandemic, this is, they've noticed, historians have noticed this during times of pandemic, it's been massively disorienting for humans, because they haven't been able to grapple with the meaning or purpose of why is this all happening? And no one knows who to blame or how to fight back. And it's real hard to find a purpose and a sense of clarity in the middle of it. And this is why I think this message of reformation is so important right now. God has not changed in 2020. And we all knew that. But the purpose of the church has not changed in 2020. The mission of the church has not changed in 2020. God's call on your life as an individual believer has not changed in 2020. Be not conformed by 2020. Be not conformed by a pandemic. Be not conformed by the headlines. Be not conformed by the political climate. Do not look to form yourself according to the narrative of the world. Instead, today remember 
that among all people, we have meaning, we have purpose, we have clarity about what God has called us to as humans. And we are called to be a, not only a moral compass, but a directional compass for the world around us who is spinning and looking for meaning and purpose. We should be absolutely clear in this moment about who we are about what God calls us to. And we should make everything in our life fit into that purpose. And we should be ruthlessly committed to it. I don't live. Christ does. My circumstances change all the time. It means nothing about the character of God and the call of the church. Compass, direction, meaning, purpose, for the church should be clear. Our role is to continue to seek God with everything we've got. We were called to know God and we were called to show God. Everything that we've got goes in that direction. And God can make that not just an effort of humans. This is the, this is the closing piece here is you need two verses that are just the encouragement. And if, you have, if you're taking notes, I want you to write these two down. 2 Corinthians 3.18 and Psalm 51.10. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, We all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of God and are being transformed. There's that word again. Into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. If I will make it my desire to know God and seek Him with all my heart and stare at Christ instead of staring at my circumstances, if I will look to Jesus instead of looking to Trump or Biden, if I will look at Jesus and the kingdom of God instead of looking at the circumstances of America, if I will look to Christ, behold him, then I will be transformed from beholding his glory to becoming his glory. And I will be transformed. And it says, and this is from the Lord who is the Spirit, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul is laboring until Christ is formed in you and among you. It's not easy and we fail. This is where Psalm 51 comes in. Greatest reformation in, in human history, in my opinion, outside of, outside of the work of Christ at Pentecost, was King Asa in the Old Testament. Greatest reformation that I've seen in the scriptures. And it says they sought God wholeheartedly, everything they had. Back then they did it Old Testament style. They put people to death if they didn't seek God. <laughs> Different kind of motivation. King Asa at the end of his life, like so many leaders, stopped seeking God. And things fell apart. I don't know if you heard the terrible stuff that came out about Ravi Zacharias recently. This brutal allegation came out about him that was published in Christianity today. Heartbreaking, man. Heartbreaking. Pillar of the faith. One of those guys who's just like, you know, he's a grandfather in the faith. Moses, at the end of his career, the end of his calling, messes up. King Asa, greatest reformation ever, turns his heart away from God. King David, after all those years, messed up with Bathsheba, 
And then this is what he says in Psalm 51.10. He says, create in me a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. It doesn't matter what's happened in 2020 up till now for you. It doesn't matter where your heart has been, where your attitude has been, where your spirit has been. God can give you new desires today. God can reform your heart. God can transform your attitude if you will say, I'm not going to be about me. I'm about you. I need you to change me so I can be about you. God will honor that prayer 100% of the time. That When you pray for healing, that's the one you know God's going to answer it. God, I need a new heart. God, I need my transformed mind. God, I need things changed. And if I bring that to the Lord honestly and humbly and say, I want to make my life about seeking you, I need you, God, he's going to answer that prayer. And if we want to be reformed as the wider church and we want to reformation, then we need our hearts transformed by God. So from the individual to the wider body of Christ, it's a wonderful time right now for us to think in terms of reformation. The circumstances have changed. Let's dive into Christ together. Amen?